You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundison, joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today. It's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, you looked the part today. Go ahead and explain what you mean. You're wearing your new t-shirt with uh, Nick Diaz, basically uh, uh, from the photo of Nick Diaz lying down and putting one hand behind his head mid-fight against Anderson Silva. That's right. This thing really, it's great to wear around town because there's no no words, nothing to explain who this is, why I'm wearing a t-shirt of him, what exactly he's doing. And so if you don't know, brother, you just don't know. So a lot of confused looks from grocery store clerks and stuff like that. It's, it's a good time. See, if I did know, I would look... And I would say this guy probably hosts a mixed martial arts podcast. You, you, if I saw you on the street in that shirt, you legitimately probably would come to that conclusion. And you know what? Then we would, I assume, share a knowing nod and then go on our way. And I might have to explain to you that the T-shirt I was wearing is a reference to the fake martial art I made up for my <laughs> uh, mixed martial arts comedy podcast. Which always, when you have to explain it, uh it's really cool. It's, it just makes it seem even cooler. That's right. And then almost everyone is like, how do I get one? And I have to say, you can't. They're gone forever. <laughs> so that's really sad for those people. You, can, must... you See, can imagine that means their every, disappointment. Every interaction you have while you're wearing that shirt kind of like ends in you plunging someone into despair. Have you had to explain to anyone who Nick Diaz is or where that shirt is from or what it represents? You know, I haven't owned the shirt that long, but every single time I, you know, I'm in public somewhere and I see somebody looking at it and I can see them doing the mental calculus of whether it's worth it to ask me about it and have a conversation about it. And I'm hoping that they don't. And every single time they eventually decide not worth it. And that's more of just a, the look on your face. I hope so. Kind of I've, thing. I've been honing this look all my life. <laughs> That's true. That is true. I've rarely seen you so happy to have a new shirt, I'll say. It's a good shirt. New sponsor alert. We're unbelievably excited this week to welcome in the new co-main event podcast sponsor, Uncaged, a brand new card game designed to recreate the action and strategy of real-life mixed martial arts competition. You're familiar with games like poker and Magic the Gathering? Well, this is the same thing, only it's for fight nerds and fantasy nerds and people who just love gaming. Uncaged is the latest offering from the folks at Toronto's Z-Mind Game Studio. And they're going to be the new sponsors of the CME for the next month or so. So we'll be telling you guys all about Uncaged, maybe even trying it for ourselves. I don't know. Ben, get us started telling all the little co-maniacs out there a little bit about Uncaged. I'd love to, Chad. Uncaged is a two-player game that recreates the action of an MMA fight and plays similarly to classic arcade fighting games such as Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat, but uses cards instead of those buttons and a joystick. It features an ever-growing cast of international fighters and fighting styles with many more on the horizon. You can build a deck around a fighter with various techniques ranging from my own beloved Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to Muay Thai to Western-style wrestling, which I know is probably the first moveset you'd gravitate toward, Chad. And much more. Select from an ever-growing list of technique cards and use them to punish your opponent with kicks, punches, takedowns, and submissions. Just when they think they've got your attacks figured out, boom, you change levels, take it to the ground, just like a real fight. 
Yeah, you know that I would try to recreate the uncaged version of like Tom the Big Cat Erickson or Daniel Bobish. That would be just like like that. Yeah. And then my massive American wrestler would squash whatever zend out jujitsu player you'd create. Nope, getting triangled. (laughs) I've been talking to the original game developer, uh, Charlie Berengen. And uh, if you're the kind of person who likes board games or card games or puzzles or anything like that, Uncaged sounds pretty cool. We're told it contains a deep, easy-to-learn, yet hard-to-master game system that will challenge anyone from ages 12 and up. It features a fast-paced play, uh, and the creators partners with, with some local artists up there in Canada to make the cards themselves look great, too. Uncaged is sure to be a hit for casual or hardcore fans of card games, fighting games, and or combat sports. You want to see what it looks like? You can go online to uncaged-cards.com and see for yourself. Even watch a short video of Charlie explaining how it all works. Multiple expansion packs are on the horizon, which means players will soon be able to create custom decks tailored to their fighting strategy, just like in Magic the Gathering, very soon. Again, the website is uncaged-cards.com, and you can also follow the good people at ZMind Games on Twitter, at ZMindGames. We got music again this week from our old pal, The Mind of Dre. He's got a new album out called The Prescription, and we're going to be featuring tracks off that for the next few weeks. If you like what you hear, we urge you to check out more at soundcloud.com slash themindofdre, or you can follow him on Twitter at themindofdre. He just started tweeting again, which is, uh, it's welcome to my timeline to have The Mind of Dre back in the, uh, in the old feed. Spicing it up. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Luke Rockhold pounds David Branch into submission and retakes his rightful place near the top of a truly fucked up middleweight division. And in round number two, Mike Perry is still crazy and off-putting, and now he walks like a chicken. We'd probably still watch him fight Robbie Lawler, though. And in round number three, so we got Shogun versus Okami in Japan this weekend? I mean, at this point... Why not? Sure, whatever. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Eric Murphy. He writes, you know my name yet? Follow-up question. Do you know my name yet? Totally unrelated issue. Seriously, do you know my name yet, Hector? It's Anthony Smith. We've met. Did Anthony Smith get drafted on Team Dundas this weekend? He put on a hell of a fight with Hector Lombard and then did the smart thing and teased a move up to the barren wasteland that is 205. Am I wrong in thinking this could be a capital G guy? Discourse Smith's future. Uh, Ben, you know you are watching UFC Fight Night 16 on a random Saturday night live from PPG Paints Arena in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when there is a dude out there fighting Hector Lombard that I, a person who covers mixed martial arts for a living, am certain that I had never seen before. Really? Prior to this fight. There's had a few UFC fights. I know, yeah. I had to look him up on the Wikipedia, and this is uh, this is the fifth UFC fight, I believe, for uh, Anthony Smith. But yeah, won them all but one. And here's the thing, though. Like, you would know if you'd seen Anthony Smith before. Yes. He's got what you might call a distinctive look. Yeah. Especially for uh, the 185-pound weight class where he's like 6'5 and covered in tattoos, as uh, Journalist of the Year Suzanne Davis put it on Twitter. The kind of guy, especially in MMA, where when he comes out, you look at him and you're thinking, okay, got to do a quick scan here for uh, any neo-Nazi tattoos just because there's a bunch of them and you don't know. Um, But... 
you know, if he's really think serious about moving up a weight class, it seems like he's got the frame to build on, right? Well, yeah, and I think that's what he said, right? Like he thinks he has the frame to do it. Uh, you got to admit, as Eric Murphy points out here, 205 is something of a barren wasteland right now. And with the uh, potential that you're not going to have Jonathan Dwight Jones around up there for, I don't know, two to four years. Uh, it's a lot less scary. Perhaps. Uh, it makes the division seem more wide open than it ever has before. And God knows you can't just have Daniel Cormier keep fighting Alexander Gustafson every damn weekend. So uh, if I was Luke Rockhold or Anthony Smith or anyone like that, why not, man? I mean, unless Anthony Smith feels like he can continue to make the cut to 185 pounds where he is just a damn giant. Yeah, I don't see how a guy who's 6'5", and, you know, he's... He's not like hugely muscular or anything, but he's also not what you'd call skinny exactly. I, it just doesn't seem like the math should work out. Uh, especially though, it created a great visual with, um, you know, human tree stump Hector right, yeah. Lombard. Hector Lombard is only five foot nine, but he's not what you might describe as a small dude. And yet Anthony Smith is out there looking, making it look like that scene in Game of Death where Bruce Lee fights Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Except in this one, Kareem Abdul Jabbar wins. Yes. And then repeatedly ask if you know his name yet. Do you know my name yet, Hector? I mean, maybe let him get his brain unscrambled, and then he can start remembering names again. Uh, what do we? Maybe think he's just bad with names. Some people aren't like that. Okay. Uh, how good do we think this Anthony Smith is? Uh, he, like we said, he's looks like he's four and one now in the UFC. Uh, this was obviously the highest profile fight that he's had to date. He's an enormous man at six five for the hundred eighty five pound division. Twenty nine years old, which. Uh, Put, should put you right there in the in the thick of your athletic prime for this sport. Uh, he, I don't know that he was winning this fight up to the point that he knocked Hector Lombard out in the third round, but uh, no matter. Well, if, you know, if you're going to get the stoppage, there you could see him. He had kind of a rough first round, and it seemed like he gained some confidence in the sex in the second round. And then when he came out there for the third, uh, it seemed like then he, you know, you could see him. I think it was after the second uh, on the stool yelling about his name, re-knowing it uh, across the cage to Hector Lombard. And that seemed to be kind of the point where he realized, like, okay, I felt his power. I, I got over the scary part. I, I figured out that I can hang in here with this guy and that maybe I can even go out there and put him away. And so, I, I don't know. I'm curious to see what the next one looks like because this could have been one of those growing experience type fights where you really see a different guy come out than the one that went in. I'll be interested to see who they give him next, especially if he decides like he's going to go to 205. Does he start completely over there, or do you book him as if he's the dude who just beat somebody? The interesting thing about this Fight Night 116 card, uh, and this is going to apply very much to the gentleman mentioned in the next question as well, but like you could make the case that you probably rolled out of this Fight Night event thinking, I want to see more of this person about every single person that won a fight on the main card, which is kind of remarkable. Well, this might be kind of a flip side to that, or at least related to that. This was probably like one of the only fight cards in memory that when we do our staff picks for MMA Junkie, almost everybody went 6-0, and which never happens. Okay. I think there were like two 5-1s, but nobody did worse than 5-1, and one, and almost everybody picked it completely perfect. So... Maybe feeling like you want to see more of these people is partially a result of it looking like a lot of matchups where there was one guy there to win and look good going forward and another guy there to help that guy win and look good going forward. Well, you did get eight stoppages in ten fights, so maybe you're on to something. Well, and hey, they got to give us something 
UFC Fight Night 116 from the PPG Paints and Plaster Pittsburgh, whatever it was. Speaking of guys you might want to see again, the next question this week from the Cheeseburger Walrus. He he writes, thoughts on Kamaru Usman. He's won six in a row in the UFC and should be lined up for a big fight next. Guys shows up to his fights and looks better and better each time out. Is he the man to take on to take out Tyron Woodley? Well, let's slow your roll a little bit there. <laughs> I mean, Kamar Usman goes out there and gets a highlight reel knockout of Sergio Moraes on the main card of this fight night event. Uh, first round, two minutes and 48 seconds in, made Sergio Moraes do a knocked out backwards somersault, I yeah. believe is what it was, up against the cage. Uh, so one you'll probably see again. And I think it was the, it's the longest, uh, it's the longest win streak in the 170 pound division, right? For Kamaru Usman? Really? Six fights in the UFC and uh, huh. it's like almost 10 fights if you count uh, his experience in Legacy FC and uh, VFC 41. Okay. So. Uh, and then he's going to get really scary yelling at you. Yes. Well, let's talk about this the Nigerian nightmare. 29 years old. Which, that nickname shouldn't, that nickname kind of violates my rules for nicknames, and yet it kind of works for him. Well, here's the thing. So he, so in my opinion, Kamaru Usman overplays the I'm a problem card a little bit, said it two or three times. I feel like you say it once, people are going to pick up on it. Okay. But then he ends the, his post-fight interview with John Anik in the cage by making some statements in Nigerian. And that was scarier than anything else he said. Like, you see this guy, kind of like pro wrestling style, speaking a foreign language after knocking someone just out cold unconscious. And you start to wonder, what's this guy all about? What's he saying right now? I believe he was saying that uh, it was all about the politics in Brazil and how the president should go to jail. Well, I mean, I assume he was giving uh, all the credit to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But at the same time, (laughs) when you don't know what they're saying, you got to be like... Well, especially in that tone, it does sound kind of menacing. Um, but yeah, I mean, he does come out of that as looking like somebody who you want to see again. I wonder about quality of competition at some point because the, the welterweight division, once you kind of get up there, there are some seriously tough guys of a variety of skill sets and some really, really experienced guys. Um, you know, I'm not saying that he doesn't beat some of those people, but it will be really interesting. I would like to see like... Let's get to some next level there with the matchmaking for him. Yeah, you got Sergio Moraes, Sean Strickland, Warley Alves, Alexander Yakolev, Leon Edwards, Hader Hassan, Marcus Hicks as previous uh, UFC opponents of uh, Kamaru Usman. I guess he fought Hicks at Legacy FC. Uh, all of whom have Wikipedia pages, so you got that going for you. Right. But at the same time, uh, if you told me that any of those people were creative fighters... From from the uncaged video or a card game or a video game that you would play, uh, I would believe you. Yeah. I believe you. Well, also when he go when Usman uh, went off about the rankings and how the people doing the UFC rankings should be ashamed of himself themselves and who even are these people? And you kind of want to tell him, yeah, we all knew that already. Like you, you Amen, should, brother. You should go actually and look at who they are because then you will still be going around saying like. Uh, this is not exactly the like broad and uh, diverse ranking panel from like a variety of major MMA sites that I thought it was. So maybe don't get too fired up about that. Next question this week comes to us from Ruben Van Zantvoort. We, I think this is a real person, Ruben Van Zantvoort. Okay, well, I mean, even when somebody writes in with like a soccer alias, that's a real person you too. You don't know that. Okay. Could be a bot. 
Anyway, he writes, even though the UFC has difficulty with properly grooming and promoting the majority of its uh, fighting roster, they do deserve credit for picking and giving a platform to new broadcasting personalities, with Paul Felder being the newest relevant addition. Brian Stan's unfortunate departure from the UFC commentary booth still hurts, but having excellent uh, technical and animated analysis from Paul and Dominic uh, really added to the excitement of the fights this weekend. Joe Rogan in DC had a pretty had pretty entertaining banner on last on last week's pay-per-view too, but I have personally always preferred Stan's uh, meticulous preparation and well-thought-out tactical and strategical analysis considerably more. How do you think the UFC will attempt to make up for losing the greatest living American, and do you guys are you guys confident uh, that they will be able to deliver on high-level color commentary going forward? Uh, that's a well-written email right there from it, well, Ruben Van Zantvoort. And I agree that Paul Felder is really good on the mic. He knocked it out of the park, yeah. I thought, on this thing. Especially Was this his first time? Uh, I mean, I think maybe he's done some of the uh, Dana White's Contender Series stuff. But, yeah, he does not have a ton of broadcasting experience, but you wouldn't know it. He seems really, really comfortable, really knows what he's talking about in there. Uh, I I hope that they give him more opportunities. But I also, to me, it's baffling that you let Brian Stan get away. And everything Brian Stan has said about it makes it seem like they really did let him get away by just not making a longer like contractual commitment to him. And, you know, some of that was, he said, like the, it was the travel time. You got to be away a lot of weekends, uh, when, you know, you have young kids, you're going to be, end up missing a lot of stuff you want to be there for. But also like a lot of the way that from what everybody says, the way they do these contracts is that a lot of those are still when you're early on in it, like kind of show to show and they don't necessarily know, like, are you going to have a job doing this in a year and a half? Um, I guess maybe that's why it makes sense to have a bunch of fighters doing it because for them it's like a sideline gig. It's not like our main income source that they're really depending on. Uh, but man, losing Brian Stan, that hurts you, I think. No, I agree with you. Uh, it's tough to see Brian Stan walk away from his UFC broadcasting career uh, and, and getting into real estate there in his hometown, which is, you know, nothing and maybe wrong. politics. And maybe politics. Yeah, nothing, nothing wrong with real estate, but I think when we all heard that. Uh, that he was leaving his UFC broadcasting career. Maybe we, I think we all thought that maybe he would do, he would get into politics or he would do a little bit more college football, which I know he's done a little bit of in the past, but uh, it's not like he's moving on up the television ladder. He's leaving his, his Fox sports broadcasting gig to, to like take a day job. Well, yeah, take but, a job with the rest of us humps, but again, down here in the gutter. Yes. <laughs> well, he's a little bit higher up in, in the gutter than we are, but even his explanation of it, again, I just came away going, God damn it, why aren't you so reasonable about everything? Because, you know, he's right when he, that's when you talk about being like on air talent and how you, just the nature of that business in general, especially the way they do these, uh, UFC Fox stuff, you just, you don't know where it's gonna go in the future. UFC is looking for a new broadcast deal. Uh, who knows exactly how it'll all work out and where that'll leave you. So, um, he kind of seemed like he did the same calculation he did as a fighter where you're going, okay, if I might have to start over soon, I should start over sooner rather than later. Uh, so I still got some time to learn something new. Um, I'll just say it right now. If he runs for some kind of political office, even if it's in Georgia or wherever, I will commit voter fraud to vote for Brian Stan. Really? I probably shouldn't, you know, probably premeditate should it. Said that in yeah. a recording in public. 
Den Balks will commit voter fraud to to go out there and vote for Brian Stan. You know what's interesting about having a guy like Paul Felder in the UFC broadcast booth is that when I hear Paul Felder out there being super good at broadcasting and like bringing a a quality technical analysis to the fights and like having a polished approach, it makes me feel more invested in Paul Felder's fighting career. Also, it makes me feel like, huh? I wonder when the next time Paul Felder is fighting. Uh, is going to be. Um, maybe I should check that out, which is not something that it probably ever would have come to the surface of my mind brain before. So even though Ruben Van Zantvoort here talks about how the UFC has difficulty properly grooming and promoting the majority of its fighters, like it's actually kind of effective to let them do this broadcasting because I feel like... If they're it, good uh, at it. Yeah, if they are good at it. Because uh, it does make me feel like Paul Felder is... is uh, he moves a little bit more to the forefront of my consciousness by seeing him do this job. That's true, and yet, but on the flip side, I found myself at one point, with since Dominic Cruz does so many of these, at one point he was like, well, I'm still trying to get that rematch with uh, Cody Garbrandt, and a weird, dumb part of my brain was like, oh, that's right, you're still, you're still fighting. Like, you, there is maybe a danger that if you do it so much, and especially when you haven't been that active, uh, then people just kind of start to think of you as you're the broadcaster, and they might forget that you're a fighter as well. Next question this week comes to us from Kevin Schuler or Schuler. He writes, so Saturday night I found myself hosting a little viewing party for Rockhold Branch and Canelo GGG. Triple G? Should I just say Triple G? Sure. After some entertaining finishes in the UFC, we paused uh, and then switched over to watch some high-class boxing, one of the best boxing matches in recent memory. Unfortunately, it ends in a disappointing anticlimactic draw. We switched back over to the UFC with sadness in our souls and unpaused to see motherfucking uh, Gillespie and Gonzalez do the damn thing. An honest reminder why uh, MMA is fucking awesome. Uh, probably the best fight on this card, right? The uh, Gregor Gillespie-Jason uh, Gonzalez lightweight fight on the main card. Uh, of UFC Fight Night 116, which Gregor Gillespie wins. And, uh, boy, you talk about a guy that you come away from these three UFC fights of his feeling like he's a big-time prospect and you'd like to see more of him. How about the 10-0 and now, uh, Gregor Gillespie? Yeah, and that was a hell of a fight, too. Just kind of all over the place, tons of action. Uh, it seemed like shoe-in right away for uh, Fight of the Night. Uh, did you watch any of the boxing match? I did not. I saw just some clips of it and whatnot. I tell you though, it, uh, when I hear stuff like, okay, you know, obviously I didn't watch enough, enough of it to know how the scoring should have gone. But when you hear everybody kind of uniformly outraged about Adelaide birds, uh, scorecard and that one, uh, it makes me feel kind of good or at least just kind of like, all right, boxing, you are fucked up too. Like, and then ways, you know, not unfamiliar to MMA fans. It just, you remember that you're all part of the same dysfunctional combat sports family. And I I feel good about that for some reason. It is my least favorite aspect of the combat sports community when I see just protracted outrage and arguing about somebody's scorecard. And And it could be completely justified, but I very rarely just even give a shit. I mean, I kind of gauge by how many people are how mad to determine. You know, if there's some people being like, I don't know, it was close, or I could see how you could come up with that score. I didn't see anybody saying that. And then all everybody's saying, like, that's, this was just unthinkable and indefensible uh, to the point when it seemed like even the uh, NSAC had to offer up a, a lame defense. So, yeah. I don't. But as far as 
going from that and then flipping over and seeing somebody like uh, Gregor Gillespie and Gonzalez do the damn thing. I guess one of the, one of the things you might feel is, yes, that was an awesome fight. Thank you for kind of wiping the uh, the slate clean and as a, as a palate cleanser there, and also for way less money. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, last question this week comes to us from Dave Clements. He writes, "Oh yeah, Dave Clements, famous uh, football player, also a soccer player. Played for the Wolverhampton Wanderers, oh, I believe, sure, in the sixties. Yeah." You know them. Love those guys. Yeah. Got one of their They're fight, all over the place. Got one of their kits. Yeah. Wear their kit a lot when I'm out and about doing my errands. He writes, when TRT was popular, the MMA media widely covered its effect on the human body, debated its usefulness in the sport, and basically beat the subject to death until the UFC finally banned it. But with USADA testing, no one is questioning the list of drugs they're testing for, and no one is questioning their methods. I'm not defending cheaters. I'm just saying, should we be, we be scrutinizing USADA maybe just a little bit? Why do we all assume that they, are, that they completely have their act together, particularly with all the other shenanigans that go on in this sport? I know this seems like an opportune time to ask these questions, given the John Jones situation, but I've been thinking this for a while, and I think a lot of other fans, listeners, and readers have been wondering the same thing. The debate will rage about on about whether USADA is quote-unquote killing the sport, but what if, I don't know, USADA mixed up John Jones' sample with someone else's? Would we really be that surprised? Why do we put so much faith in them always getting things right? Please, discourse. I don't know that I would say no one is questioning their yeah. methods and or what they test for, et cetera, et cetera, because I've actually seen a lot of that, yeah. especially in the wake of... Uh, this recent John Jones test. Well, even before that, with the Leota Machida thing, I think a lot of people were saying, okay, wait a minute, what are we actually doing here? Are we catching cheaters or are we just catching people who are careless uh, when they're shopping for supplements in the, the health food aisle of the grocery store? Yeah, um, I don't know. And, I, I, you know, the, the, the system, the current system, obviously is not perfect, but I'm still. Uh, of the opinion that it's probably better than what they had before. And I understand the, uh, the, like the feeling of being let down and of potential outrage by seeing somebody like John Jones get flagged and now facing what could be a, uh, a possibly career ending, uh, suspension if he gets the full four year ban. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know that the drug testers are the people that we should blame, right? Or the 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 company's uh, attempt to have enhanced drug testing. I'm not sure is the thing that is to blame here. Yeah, well, and as for the question, why do we assume that they have their act together? Because they have a reputation uh, as having their act pretty well together for the way uh, these anti-doping agencies go. I mean, you can kind of, you could argue between, you know, VADA or USADA or something, but they're using WADA accredited labs. They have, you know, it's not like you're, you have a whole lot of basis for saying like, hey, maybe this thing that they say tested positive for just wasn't there at all. I don't know, like, I, I just don't see the, a whole lot of history to back up that claim. The question more is, where did it come from? Uh, and, you know, even with the prior John Jones test, it, nobody ever seriously tried to make the argument that this substance just wasn't there. It was where did it come from? And I think that they're actually pretty reasonable about entertaining these arguments about where it came from. Whereas before, the way state athletic commissions would do it, you'd say like, hey, I know I tested positive for steroids. I think it was this supplement. I've tested this or had this t supplement tested. The thing is in there. Uh, and they wouldn't even listen to it. They'd just, hey, hey, you're responsible for whatever you put in your body. Here's your uh, suspension. 
And USADA, I mean, I appreciate the way that they're at least willing to hear the argument and do some investigation. So I, I do think that it's an improvement. And let's also not forget that when the UFC was responsible for kind of doing it themselves whenever they were in a jurisdiction where there was no commission or anything, remember they went to Macau and busted Kung Lee using like an occupational drug testing lab that then when Kung Lee's people said, all right, we want to test the B sample, they'd thrown it out. And they had tested it at like a lab that didn't even have uh, was not equipped to do the kind of testing for like HGH that they said that they found. So this is still an improvement. And I think you're right that we're, I understand people saying like, okay, let's, you know, take a look at this rather than just assuming that it's good. I think that that's, that's fair. That is something worth uh, talking about. But I think a lot of that is misguided that we're just pissed off about seeing fights getting ruined either before or after, and we want to blame somebody, and maybe we don't want to blame the people who are actually at fault. Yeah, and let's not forget the uh, Josh Gross report, right, from a uh, year or two ago now about the shenanigans involving Vitor Belfort's testosterone levels leading up to the fight against John Jones. Yeah, in Toronto. Right? Uh, and so to now, you know, the, Belfort still went out there and fought, and obviously John Jones fought Daniel Cormier at, at this event, but at the same time, uh, if you are going to be bringing John Jones up on these serious drug testing uh, rules and have him face this potential two to four year ban, uh, I feel like that's a sign that at least the system is working, right? Because if you were going to, if you were going to fudge this or have an, if the UFC and USADA were going to have an inappropriate relationship uh, it would be the other way. It yeah, would be you, we'd it, be shoving it under the rug. Right? Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't have you know a John Jones facing potentially the end of his career. Right. So that's hard to swallow for a lot of fans, but it also I think shows maybe that the system has improved, and that that uh, you know the relationship maybe is is working. I don't know. Do you think that? Uh... Do you get maybe the sense that the UFC would like for there to be enough momentum from fans for saying, like, hey, we don't like this, we don't think it's working, we have doubts about it? Because if you're the UFC, if you could find a good enough justification for ending, like, the USADA contract or however long it is not renewing it, might save you some headaches. Oh, yeah, you know? absolutely. Like, do you think that the UFC might be thinking of ways where you could, especially the new ownership, might be thinking of ways where you can get out from under this one? I don't know. I have no concept of that. That's... uh. I don't know how you could kind of rewind it at this point. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You know, you talk about poor optics. I don't know how it would look if you were like, all right, you know, we've decided we tried this enhanced drug testing and it's it's just not really working out. Because... Yeah, it would be tough. You would need a whole lot of like groundswell of support for people saying you saw sucks. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's uh, listener mail segment. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. It comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. Uh, it's informative. We would love to think it's funny. And if it's not your cup of tea, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. 
On a yoko, on a trip to hold of them. Only notice after a couple kisses, save a both of them. Leave the paper trails in the bloodstream. Now I'm focusing on the colors, calling the whole team for red and indigo. I'm finna enter invincible mode. Every joining in, and now my vision distorted. Oh Lord, every single object is constantly changing proportions. Feeling like the force awakens. Well, Ben, Luke Rockhold is back. He returns to the Octagon for the first time since his June 2016 loss to Michael Bisping. And he gets the win over David Branch via second round submission due to punches. And uh, Rockhold comes out in this fight, has some rough moments early on. There was some time when when Dave Branch was kind of tuning him up on the feet there. Uh Luke Rockhold's head bouncing around, receiving those punches in a way that made you think maybe Branch was going to come out here and steal this thing. But Luke Rockhold eventually gets it under control, gets gets Branch on the ground, and ends up uh, stopping him with some ground and pound. Uh, where where does this leave Luke Rockhold now, Ben, in the middleweight division that still seems quite sidetracked by the title reign of Michael Bisping and now the the entrance of former welterweight champion George St. Pierre? Yeah, this one seemed to me kind of for Luke Rockhold like a reminder fight. Like, you know, he's got to get back in there. He's been gone for a minute. Uh, you got to get back in there, beat up a, a middleweight who matters to remind everybody that you are one of the top guys in the division. And now you could kind of do anything with him. You can throw him up against somebody else, you know, like a, a UL Romero type or somebody else in the top of the division. If, you know, if you're going to distract yourselves with uh, Michael Bisping and GSP and then whatever madness is going to follow that and it's not going to be a legitimate middleweight title defense you could throw him up against you know bobby knuckles or something uh you can just kind of or you can have him fight another middleweight contender to just kind of tread water a little bit and wait for that opportunity or wait for things to clear up a little bit at the top of the division so this didn't really advance anything for me but it did serve to remind everybody that luke rockhold is legit and uh he's one of the best dudes in the division i mean i think I, I appreciate the kind of direction he was trying to go with his post-fight call out there, uh, focusing on GSP instead of on Michael Bisping. Uh, but I think that he has, if you're looking for somebody you could sell the hell out of, if Michael Bisping is still middleweight champion and you're looking to make a legit middleweight title defense for the first time for Michael Bisping, you, you might very well look at Luke Rockhold and be like, he might not have the strongest claim. Uh, but if Bobby Knuckles is still hurt or rehabbing from a knee injury, you can sell this rivalry fight uh, between Rockhold and Bisping, who, as always, will make it into a goddamn blood feud. Yeah, if nothing else, Luke Rockhold went out there and showed us that he's not you know, going to go be a male model. Probably he's not just going to go do photo shoots with Alan Joban. Uh, he's back in the mix here. Although and, you'd love to see him running on the beach, wouldn't you? I mean, there's plenty of footage, if that's what you're interested in. <laughs> just rewind the DVR. Uh now he he is he is the kind of guy that you think could fight anyone here at the at the top of the middleweight division. It's going to be very interesting though to see what happens to the middleweight title after this Michael Bisping George St. Pierre fight. Uh it is, I, I think it's largely assumed that Luke Rockhold obviously assumes I sort of assume that if George St. Pierre were to win that fight that he's not going to fight any of these top middleweights. Just seems like a uh, suicide mission for George St. Pierre, who is not an enormous man. Okay, what do you think he would do, though? Do you think that he would just be like, and that's it, I'm back out again, uh, aliens and head drama, or do you think that uh, he would try to look for somebody like a Conor McGregor type 
in yes, order to the, the folks in listener land can't see, but I'm enthusi- enthusiastically nodding right now. That counts as enthusiastic for you. Yes. 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 I think he would. Well, but uh, the thing that that would be interesting about it is, is if he tried to keep the middleweight title and do that, or would he just vacate it? And then we have a, you know, a, a tournament or they, they promote uh, Bobby Knuckles to champion. And I think it's going to be equally interesting to see what will happen if Bisping wins. Yeah, that's what like, I was going to say. Is, is Bisping really going to fight Luke Rockhold again or Yoel Romero or Robert Whitaker? Or does Bisping, at that point, maybe he waits for the buy rate statistics to come in. But like, does Bisping think about hanging it up and walking away from this thing if he beats George St. Pierre? Yeah, I wonder that too. Because Bisping is you know getting into late 30s now and he's been in some tough, tough fights. You know, he's... Especially those last few fights where the one with Dan Henderson, the one with Anderson Silva before that, like he has really had to get a lot of career advancement out of his ability to take punishment and keep coming. And that's going to start to wear on you the older you get. I also, though, think that he is enough of a competitor and a guy who is going to kind of stay at the roulette table until it all goes bad, where he is going to see that opportunity like to... You know, he might not be super into like a Bobby Knuckles kind of fight, but if he thinks he can make a lot of money out of a Luke Rockhold rubber match, I I don't think he thinks of himself the way everybody else thinks of him. Like, okay, well, you got lucky once and you'll probably get tuned up again if you have to fight that guy again. I think he believes that he'd probably go out there and win, and he's just looking for which one is going to make him the most money. Yeah, I always forget that Michael Bisping is 38 years old. Yep. He's about to turn 39 in February, which... uh if he did, you know, depending on how the the sale of this UFC, what is it, two seventeen that they're going to fight at, uh, pay per view goes, uh, and depending on the Michael Bisping home financial situation, depending on how Michael Bisping has maybe handled his finances over his long and uh, illustrious UFC career, I would not be that surprised to see him walk away, uh, especially if he gets a victory over George St. Pierre, and if he does that. Uh, then I think you got a much better chance of seeing somebody like Luke Rockhold fight Robert Whitaker to to you know decide who is going to be the non interim and permanent version of the champion moving forward. Uh, what about Dave Branch here? He, he's a guy who obviously left the UFC in 2010, 2011, something like that. Went out and had a ton of success fighting in other organizations. Obviously, prim- primarily World Series of Fighting. Uh, becomes the two-division champion there, the light heavyweight and middleweight champion. Came into the UFC and beat Christoph Jotko at UFC 211 by split decision, but still, as we said last week, was the kind of dude where we weren't totally sure how good this new sort of revamped version of Dave Branch was. Clearly, he has his moments against maybe a rusty Luke Rockhold early on in this fight. Ends up getting stopped in the second round. Does this derail a lot of enthusiasm or interest, I guess you would say, in the executive branch in his career. I think it does highlight maybe the limits of where Dave Branch can go. I don't think it means that you know he sucks or anything. Luke Rockhold's obviously a really good fighter, uh, and I think Dave Branch is still going to be a problem for a lot of people in the middleweight division. But I think that a fight like this does show that if you are starting to wonder whether you should start making up those executive branch for middleweight champion t-shirts maybe you want to hold off on that because it doesn't seem like he's going to quite get there Um, but there's still a lot of people he's going to beat i mean the thing i wondered is and danny downs and i talked about this a little bit what do you make of a guy in that situation tapping to strikes nothing i'm not a uh a big detractor of that move yeah me neither it sucks i bet to have a 
an enormous person like Luke Rockhold, uh, who w- issues you like wishes you ill to be on top of you and is a person who is trained to inflict as much damage as he possibly can. Uh, I'd be the first dude out here tapping to strikes. I would tap to the threat of strikes. <laughs> well, especially the thing to me was we've seen plenty of people in that position where the guy's got your back. He's flattened you out. He's uh, peppering you with punches. You can't defend all the places that he is hitting you at the same time. And the guys will just cover up and not move knowing that the referee is going to stop that. Uh, not because they're so hurt by any one strike, but just knowing that they're stuck. This is bad and it's going to get worse. And so they cover up, stop moving, stop fighting back, and wait for that referee stoppage. And to me, that is effectively the same thing as tapping the strikes. It's You know what's going to happen when you do that. You know the referee is going to come in there and stop that fight, which at that point is what you want. But you don't want to be the guy reaching out his hand and, and actually doing the tapping because there's some kind of stigma or because MMA fans who love to call fighters wimps are going to seize on that opportunity to do exactly that. Um, and so, you know... I was behind him when he not only did that, but then afterwards explained like, hey, I didn't just quit there. You know, that I decided it's better to fight another day than stand here and just take a bunch more brain drama for no good reason, which is smart. But I just I wonder, it seems like the kind of smart that MMA fans are not going to understand. It seems completely ridiculous to like uh, criticize someone for saving themselves from taking additional punches to the head on, you know, on the ground in a borderline defenseless state. Uh, I got to side with Dave branch on that one, especially since like, uh, I'm not trusting the ref to step in and save me from that punishment. What if he got distracted by something shiny outside the cage and he's just, uh, asleep at the wheel. And we've seen it happen. <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm, I'm on board with that. Anything else you wanted to say about either, uh, Dave branch or Luke Rockhold here before we move on to, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, I really wish the the Luke Rockhold get out of the way GSP thing could have gone off a little smoother because it's a great idea. As far everybody expects you to get on the mic and just be like Michael Bisping, you absolutely suck kind of thing, but to go ahead and be like George Saint Pierre, you're in trouble. This is a bad idea for you. You're gonna get crushed. Get out of the way and let me slide in there, which obviously is not going to happen. GSP has been trying to make this fight happen for like a year and a half, uh, but I really like the idea. I wish the execution would have been a little better. The thing, the Luke Rockhold quote that's, that sticks with me is after the weigh-in, they, you know, Branch and Rockhold had words at the weigh-in on stage, and then afterward, somebody asked Rockhold what was said up there, and Rockhold said, well, he's just got a very high opinion of himself. And I think when we all heard that, we all went, oh, oh, oh he does, does he? <laughs> does he now? Does he have a high opinion of himself, Luke yeah. Rockhold? So. A lot of Rockhold mic work not coming off maybe the way he would want. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, Jed, uh, first of all, we should say congratulations to our friend Ariel Helwani, who recorded his uh, 400th episode of Ooh. the MMA Fortnite. Which I don't a lot know, of people you, don't know the first one's still going on. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, you can do the math. Uh, 400 times two weeks. It's a lot of content. Yes, That's a lot is. of hours of interviews and, and talking. So, uh, congratulations to him, but he had, uh, your boy, the, the Dragon King. Yep. Edmund, In a minute since we've heard from the Dragon King, Edmund, Edmund Targaryens. Edmund Targaryens, uh, Ronda Rousey's coach on there, and he was saying he thinks there's one more fight left for Ronda Rousey, and it is Chris Cyborg. Man. Dog. You fucking kidding Dragon me? Dragon King. You fucking kidding me? You trying to mess around and get your girl killed? Or you trying to mess around and pay down some of the enormous debt that you went to court over recently? Are you fucking kidding me? 
the best way to tell when a coach doesn't actually care about a fighter's welfare is when he's trying to talk her into a fight like this that is an absolutely terrible idea. There are other, if Ronda Rousey wants to come back for one big payday, there are other fights she could put together that's going to make her a bunch of money. She does not need to go out there and get her head knocked clean off by Chris Cyborg. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? I feel like him saying that carries the exact same weight as the last thing that your drunk buddy yells before you drag him out the back door of the bar and put him in a taxi. He's like, you can't 86 me. I'll, I'll be back and I'm going to fight Chris Cyborg. And you just like push him in a cab and send him home. That's to me. It's about the same level of uh, of emphasis and and weight. Well, if you're pushing the Dragon King in a, in a cab and sending him home, you better pay the driver in cash up front because he might not be able to cover it once he gets there. Good point. Good point. Ben, uh, Justin Ledette looks like the killer in a low budget horror movie that you would see on Showtime at like three thirty in the morning. Oh, okay. I mean, the, All right. clearly he's a talented striker. Goes out there and gets the the heavyweight victory this week. Uh, at UFC Fight Night 116, it makes a priceless face yes. when that was announced that it was a split decision. Uh, but like, he looks like the character in the movie that's killing high-priced call girls, and the only person that cares enough to investigate it is gritty, plain-clothes police detective played by Shannon Tweed. Uh, and you know she's got to go undercover for that one, yeah, in order to crack that case. So I guess a series of spring break murders. I, just with the haircut kind of an are you fucking kidding me? Haircut related are you fucking kidding me this week? Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. On a yoko, on a tickle, hold of them. Only know the scap of a couple kisses, save a both of them. Leave the paper trails in the bloodstream. Now I'm focusing on the colors, calling the whole team for red and indigo. I'm finna end in invincible mode. Every joining in, and now my vision distorted. Oh Lord, every single object is constantly changing proportions. Feeling like the force awakens. The body coyote because the mind is great. Don't know if it's dark unless I just take it. All right, Chad, I'm going to set a scene for you here. You're you're down there in the PPG Paints Arena in Pittsburgh. Platinum Mike Perry walking out with, I'm going to say, about a pound and a half of hair gel in his due. Of course, you know, got the face tattoo just to let everybody know how plan, how long he plans on living. Uh, goes out there. He's supposed to fight Tiago Alves, which seemed like a crackerjack of a fight. Instead, Alves can't get out of there due to uh, Hurricane Irma-related stuff in Florida. Fights Alex Reyes and just makes mincemeat of him, as you would expect. Uh, then afterwards, does a legitimately spot-on rooster impression. And then says, you know what, I think everybody would like to see me beat up Robbie Lawler. That's just a solid goddamn night of work from Mike Perry, is it not? That's not the first time he's done that chicken dance. Oh, really? Like, you can, well, I mean, it's the first time we've seen it, but you can tell from his performance. (laughs) I see what you're saying. Yeah, like, no, he's, that's a thing that he does. Yeah. You can tell that. You're saying if he beats you in Madden, you're, you're seeing the chicken dance. He's doing the chicken dance in your living room, uh, and he'll dare you to stop it. Uh, we have talked at length about the problematic nature of Mike Perry. Obviously, some stuff, uh, in his past, the, uh, the video of catching his corner men making some uh, racial comments before his first fight, the picture of him on the internet in blackface, uh, a report that I was actually unaware of until after this fight, uh, that he got into it with Jeremy Stevens during the UFC athlete retreat. Remember the one where, Who the fuck uh, is that guy? Oh, okay. Yeah. Where, uh, cyborg punched Angela yes. Magana. Yeah. Uh, same retreat. No. Oh. At, at the club 
Mike Perry, well, by his own admission, gets into it with Jeremy Stevens. Because they said, let those guys go to the club during that. Re- they should circulate pictures of every UFC fighter there for the retreat to every club in Vegas. I mean, like, don't let them in. Mike Perry alleges that Jeremy Stevens tried to dance up on his girl. Okay. At the club, and knew it was Mike Perry's girl. Mike Perry pushed him over and then said something to the effect of, "He was really mad, but he's he weighs 145 pounds." So who the fuck is that guy? <laughs> uh, long story short, Mike Perry, problematic individual in the UFC. But okay, are we ready to like kind of reevaluate? Like that's the question I was about to ask you because he comes out of this fight against Alex Reyes, which obviously uh, is against a short notice opponent who comes up from lightweight to fight this just absolute murderer at 170 pounds and gets KO'd in a minute and 19 seconds like you think that he might need right in his face. Uh, and then Mike Perry does the chicken dance, and then he gets on the mic and and calls out Robbie Lawler. Are are we starting to re- reevaluate Mike Perry at least as kind of like a must-watch fighter in this welterweight division at this point? I think of Mike Perry right now as kind of like a fast and furious movie. Like, you got to understand how it's meant to be appreciated. And that's how I feel like maybe we need to look at Mike Perry. Because, like, especially in some of the stuff that people will point to as him being, like, problematic, and I understand that. uh, But a lot of them, I feel like, are instances where if he knew better, he might do better. And maybe they're just... Uh, a kind of a, a personality overflowing and not really taking into account, like, you know, he's not taking a lot of careful steps here. And so, okay, he, he, he's going to mess up some of those things from time to time. Uh, but I, I mean, you look at him and the, his fighting style and everything about him and you're like, God damn, it's just a crime. He wasn't around for the affliction era of MMA because he is just made for it. He's made to come out to like a corn song. Uh, in like a t-shirt covered in glittery skulls and chains. Like he is that guy. And then go out there and knock people out. I mean, they would have loved Mike Perry in 2006 UFC. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that anyone is, wants to make the case that like he seems like a good person all of a sudden because you don't necessarily have to, to like the guy or even respect his, his choices. Uh, to want to, to want to see him fight. Like, I think that there's a lot of people that tune in and a lot of people that frankly would tune in to watch him fight Robert Glenn Lawler, uh, in the hopes of seeing Mike Perry get tuned up. Uh, which, if you are Mike Perry, is just as good for you as if people tuned in, you know, wanting to see you relish in victory and all that stuff. He's just, I don't know exactly what to say about the guy. I can only say that he has made himself interesting, which if you are, if you get paid to fight other people inside a steel cage, uh, and there are 500 other people at your place of work that do that same job, like, that's kind of the most important part is to make yourself memorable, make yourself interesting. And Mike Perry by hook or by crook, uh, has kind of done that at this point. Well, yeah. And he's doing everything that we ask of fight. Like he goes out there, uh, he, you know, he's kind of in a, I don't say a no win situation, but, it, it becomes a bad deal for him once Tiago Alves pulls out of this fight because then, you know, you get the late replacement who you absolutely have to beat. You, you can't – you have to beat him and you have to look flawless doing it. You, anything else feels like a, a detriment to you. And he goes out there and he does that. Then what does he do? Um, well, okay, distinctive dance for one thing. Um, and when he gets on the mic, he didn't even need John Anik to ask him to call somebody out. He says, I know you're going to ask who who I want to fight next. 
I think everybody wants to see me beat up uh, Robert Glenn Lawler. Like, he's got all the pieces at work here that we say we want from fighters, does he not? Everything and face tattoo, about so that's distinctive. Mike Perry is performative. Like, every single thing. Uh, even his physical appearance. Yeah. Uh, permanently performative. This is not a sport that rewards a lot of subtlety, and he is painting in broad strokes in kind of every aspect of his, his public appearance and, and public performance here. So I think, yeah, you got to do it. However, when he mentioned Robbie Lawler's name, and I was just like, oh, a, a rumbling has been issued from Mount Zion as the MMA gods realize how awesome that fight would be. Uh, and then, I started to think about who would actually win that fight because Robbie Lawler is, you know, 35 years old at this point and been fighting for a long time. If he entered a fall-off phase, especially with all the mileage he's got on his body, it would not be super surprising. And yet there would be something kind of deeply sad for me about seeing, you know, 35-year-old former UFC champion and just like long-time MMA veteran Robbie Lawler getting knocked out by 26-year-old Mike Perry with his goddamn hair gel and face tat. Well, and that's one of the things that makes it kind of an intriguing call-out, right, is that it seems like a borderline smart call-out for Mike Perry to make that. I'm not saying Mike Perry goes out there and beats Robbie Lawler because we haven't seen Mike Perry fight anybody in the UFC approaching uh, Robbie Lawler's caliber. Uh, But like you said, Robbie Lawler is on the... You know, he's into the twilight, obviously, of his MMA career. He's, Robbie Lawler made his UFC debut a couple months before Mike Perry's 11th birthday. So he's been at this for a while. And I do feel like it is both an intriguing and an interesting, you know, like a, a smart call out by Mike Perry. And the thing that I wondered was like, would Robbie Lawler ever in a million years want to take that fight? On one hand, there's no way that number one contender Robbie Lawler in the welterweight division would should fight unranked 26-year-old Mike Perry. On the other hand, when you say you want to fight Robbie Lawler, he is liable to take that very seriously. (laughs) He's not the kind of guy that is automatically going to evaluate the situation like, well, I have a lot to lose here. It is not smart for me to take this fight. He might be like, you know, thinking about the human teeth that he will collect after this is over and take home for his personal collection. Yeah, and well, I guess the question is, what do what does the UFC want to do with Robbie Lawler? Because he just beat Donald Cerrone. Uh, if you're not going to give him another crack at the UFC welterweight title, then you probably don't want him knocking off somebody else who you might give another crack at the title. So you're either putting him in like a a title fight or I guess like a you know number one contender solidifier kind of fight, or you're just looking to have some goddamn fun. And you might put him up against Mike Perry. But I don't, if, if Mike Perry were to knock out Robbie Lawler, I, I would maybe shed an old man tear just well, yeah, for would, what, would that, what that would represent. It would be sad. And luckily for Mike Perry, or like luckily for us, perhaps, Robbie Lawler is not the only op- option here at 170 pounds. And this is what I mean by maybe Mike Perry has transformed himself into a much must-watch fighter at 170 pounds. Like if you told me he was just going to fight Kamaru Usman next – I would be into that. That seems like a great thing. If you told me he was going to fight Santiago Ponzanibio next. Get your fight kid out. Okay, let's yeah. do it, right? Like, is Carlos Condit still around? Is he still fighting? Because he's up there at number seven at 170 pounds. And if you told me you were going to fall short of Robbie Lawler, but fast forward Mike Perry into a, a 
a fight against another exciting striker like Carlos Condit. Okay. Man, Tell me when it is. Carlos Condit ain't taking that fight. Well, no, I, I don't think so, but I'm just saying Mike Perry has worked himself into this position where it seems like there are numerous opponents that, that would make a good fight for him. And, and I think people will want to tune in to watch it for the sheer weirdness of it, if nothing else. Even the man's diction is strange. <laughs> like when he's on the mic and he's like, I'll just give you a name because I know you're going to ask. And it's just like, why are you so strange, Mike Perry? It sounds like you're doing poetry slam up there with John Anik in the cage. Oh, uh, And then, you know, everybody has to wonder, you see whatever matchup you put them in and you, you see it on paper and you wonder, does this end in a chicken dance? <laughs> does it indeed? We know one thing that will not end in a chicken dance, and that is round two of the co-main event podcast. We'll be right back with round number three. On a yoko, on a chicka, hold of them. Only notice after a couple kisses, save a both of them. Leave the paper trails in the bloodstream. Now I'm focusing on the colors, calling the whole team for red and indigo. I'm finna enter invisible mode. Every joining in, and now my vision distorted. Oh Lord, every single object is constantly changing proportions. Feeling like the force awakened. Well, Ben, a lot of confusing stuff happening surrounding this weekend's UFC Fight Night 117 card live and free at Saitama Super Arena in Saitama, Japan. But where is my question? But where? It's supposed to be on a channel called FXX. Okay. Does that got the movies? I don't know. But I looked on my satellite TV guide a few, little, little bit earlier before you got here, and it is listed on there to go down on Fox Sports 2. Okay. So. It's like the skateboarding channel, right? Yes. Skateboarding it and car, car shows. The thing where like a guy will, car auctions. We haven't even got to Yushin Okami. Okay. Who gets into this fight per an announcement during UFC Fight Night 116, actually in between video packages promoting Ovin St. Prue's fight with Shogun Hua as, I believe, the long-awaited rematch is yeah, what they call just it. Just clamoring. The People have been clamoring for that one. Highly, highly anticipated. Re it calls it something ridiculous that it's not. In between those video packages, we get word that Shogun Hua is injured. Surprise, surprise. Alert the media. Shogun Hua injured. And Yushin Okami, of all people is in, I assume, because you got to find somebody who's going to be in the neighborhood. First of all, if you're talking, whenever you're going to say uh, Shogun Hua is injured and therefore off a card, you need to, just to be more clear, say he is too injured. Because he's always injured at this point, just through all the battles he's been in and the state of his body. Injured is probably going to be the default state to some extent for the rest of his life. What you're saying is that he is too injured to fight. Just for the sake of clarity. And, yeah, if you're going to replace, uh, you know, somebody on, like, what, six days notice or something, it goes down basically Friday night here uh, in Japan, then you need somebody who hopefully the local fans care about in Japan. Uh, also, somebody who it would help be helpful if they we don't have to worry about, like, visa issues or something of them getting in there and being able to fight. Um, so Okami's a pretty good bet. He, you know, he fought a bunch in... Uh, the WSOF, the former WSOF, and then has fought a couple fights recently uh, back home in Japan. So, uh, yeah, hey, why not? It's well, not like this thing really mattered that much anyway. He's also probably not going to have to worry about making weight, right? Considering not that at light heavyweight. he is a middleweight, 
We haven't seen Yushinokami in the UFC since 2013. Uh, he lost to Ronaldo Jacare Souza, then went over there to World Series of Fighting, uh, has fought in Deep, uh, has fought in Pancrase, has fought in World Series of Fighting, Professional Fighters League. Uh, he's actually coming off a four-fight win streak, though, uh, headed into this short-notice meeting with Ovin St. Preux. Uh, Yushinokami always regarded as a tough guy, the kind of guy you just can't overlook, but he comes into this fight, obviously, uh, on short notice, and he's going to be at a fairly obvious, significant physical disadvantage against Ovin St. Preux, uh, well, who is a big and athletic and capable light heavyweight well, nothing and nothing else. That is one of the things that Okami, too, has relied on in his career, is being a big dude for the weight class. Um, kind of insane that he ever fought at welterweight. I, I remember... Uh, you know, Mike Swick talking about fighting Okami and saying how he was like the biggest, strongest dude he had ever fought. Uh, and then, you know, even at middleweight, he, re- you know, he's big middleweight and he relied on just being a, like bigger, stronger and smothering people on the ground. To tell you what the UFC thought of him, by the way, that loss that he went out on uh, to Jacques Ray Souza. I mean, for one thing, you're losing to Jacques Ray, so it's not like that's a sign that you suck. But he had a three-fight win streak in the UFC before that and then one loss to Jacques Ray, and that was about it. Uh, but, you know, coming in here now on... Sure, a four-fight win streak, but also six days' notice against a guy like Ovin St. Preux. That, you know, I guess the best thing you have going for you is uh, familiarity with the subway system in, in Tokyo. He, he, and he's not going to have any problem knowing where to get something, something good to eat. So he's got that. Yeah, he's going to be able to find Saitama Super Arena. Yeah. Probably pretty. No problem there. Why, Other than that, I don't know. Why were we running this thing back in the first place? No good reason at all. Ovin St. Preux, remember when the UFC went to Uberlandia? Yes, that's right. The fictional uh, city of Uberlandia, Brazil. Back there in November 2014, Ovin St. Preux beats Shogun Hua via TKO uh, in 34 seconds, which was the shortest defeat of Shogun's career, so you can understand how he would want a do-over. Uh, but to put this thing back together... A little bit short of three years later is kind of a head scratcher. Yeah, well, and you could have told a lot of people that the that they were fighting for the first time, and they would have believed it, just because it wasn't like it was a huge moment that a lot of people remembered in their lives of the the night that Shogun meant Saint Prue, and Saint Prue even I mean you know he lost what like three in a row, then won one fight with the the Von Flu choke, which if that's going to be your thing, I think that's actually kind of awesome. But then wins one fight, and then suddenly he's main event stuff uh, for UFC in Japan, which kind of just tells you that maybe the UFC sees this as like, all right, well, you don't want to completely lose your foothold in Japan. You want to throw some shows on there every once in a while, but you don't want to give them anything too great either like when you need it elsewhere. Yeah, these this... Uh, this hey, UFC, look at the card. The, I, well, I mean... Uh... There's some interesting stuff going on on this card, but I think you put Ovin St. Preux versus Yushin Okami uh, on the marquee as your main event here at UFC Fight Night 117 in Japan. This is one of those ones that when I see it, I think to myself, we are in some trouble in this sport. Just, uh, we're, we're living in the doldrums. These ain't the high times anymore. Or, you know, we're ha- we're having a lull here, significant lull during 2017. Or, you, I mean, you're, to me, I look at the fight card in general, and I, it looks like, okay, you're relying on 
the thing that's going to sell tickets is a novelty of the UFC coming to town. Um, B Gomi's on the card. You know, you got some like favorites like Gomi, you got Taruto Ishihara, uh, Mizuto Hiroto, uh, and then you got, you know, Gokan Saki. Um, so you got enough to kind of get some people in the building there. It's a Friday night, kind of a weird and on a weird channel for, uh, just general fight viewing fans over here on, on this side of the Pacific. So it seems like maybe, I don't want to say you're writing that one off entirely, but it's, we're into the realm of content here. We're not doing, you know, big, huge, uh, can't miss action. This is just more content for the bank. That's a good way to put it. That's a good, uh, that's a good uh, vocabulary word to use to describe this one here. Uh, I'm just now realizing that I probably was looking at the rebroadcast over there on, on Fox Sports 2 ah, on okay. Saturday night. So I need to go circle back to my DVR, set this thing up for Friday night. Lucky you told me that. I could might have just missed it. Yeah. Which would have been a, a real shame <laughs> not to take this guy in. Just sincerity all over your face right now. Well, should we do Just Saying Stuff and then we'll get out of here? By all means. Ben, my Just Saying Stuff is actually UFC Fight Night 117 related, so I'll just go ahead and do that first. You just mentioned him a second ago, but uh, Gokansaki, the uh, decorated kickboxer, That's right. is making his UFC debut at this event inside the Octagon. So I guess this week I'm just saying 33-year-old Gokansaki goes out there, makes his debut in the light heavyweight division, uh, at kind of an interesting time. We don't know what John Jones is doing. The div- whole division seems wide open. I guess I'm just saying that if this athletic dude who punches hard, seems to have a little bit of a flair to him, goes out there and manages to become a thing in the light heavyweight division, I can think of worse things. I can think of worse things. It's an opportune time for Gokensaki to make his debut at 205 pounds. As long as he can get everyone to engage in a gentleman's agreement not to take him down well and i mean you, you you're looking for a division and try to do that in. you might as well pick the one where there's only like five other guys so there you go <laughs> just saying. get all those guys together at the same table to make that agreement get them all at once so it's, and it's yeah, like a, round a table. group account, round table situation like kind of a group accountability thing we all saw you agree to it therefore we're going to hold you to it i like that uh, this week, I'm just saying, we mentioned uh, Gregor Gillespie earlier in the, you know his great fight that he had, the fight of the night, definitely, at UFC Fight Night 116. Uh, and I wrote a thing today about how, you remember back in April when he had like a 20-second knockout, and then the thing he got on the mic, and he was like, hey, I'm the best fisherman in MMA, follow me on Instagram for some great fishing. And we were like, what? What are you talking about? That's it. That kind of came out of nowhere. Um, but of course... You make a pitch like that, I'm going to take you up on it. I am going to follow you on Instagram, and I am going to expect some great fishing. And it's been almost six months now since I've been following him. And after, you know, his win this time, and it, they ask him, you know, who you want to fight next? And he immediately was like, I got to do some, I got to get back to some fishing before I even think about fighting again. And I realized, yes, he does. Because that man loves fucking fishing, Chad. And I have learned a lot following him, mostly... I watched a video of him holding a fish. He's holding it in his hand while he's telling us that this fish has a venomous dorsal fin. And it is stinging him as he is speaking to us and recording himself on his iPhone for Instagram. But don't worry, Chad, because he has built up a tolerance to the venom, Dread Pirate Robert's Iocane powder style, by being stung 
in his words, thousands of times before. I'm just saying, Gregor Gillespie, welcome to the team. <laughs> wow, big news, breaking just news saying. here at the end of this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Best fisherman in MMA. That's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be back next week to uh, break down all the stuff that happens at UFC Fight Night St. Prue versus Okami. Just seems weird even to say it. Yeah. And then we're going to have a little bit of dead time there until October 7th. But we'll start to consider the idea of UFC 216 where uh, Kevin Ferguson, or I always say that now, Kimbo Slice, the dearly departed Kimbo Slice. Tony Ferguson takes on Kevin Lee. Uh, Demetrius Johnson takes on Ray, Ray Borg uh, and a bunch of other fun stuff. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. The thing I think we need to get nailed down at this point is fine. Gregor Gillespie, best fisherman in MMA. It's not really disputed. Who's second best? Well, I was just going to say, I, there's got to be some people out there, uh, like a Jim Miller type, who's going to see Gregor Gillespie's claim of being the best fisherman in MMA and be like, oh, wait a fucking second here, right? Somebody's got to be pissed off about it. I don't know. If they start really delving into his interest.